rhetorical listeners. This is another episode of The Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On Friday, March 20th, the Rhetoric Society of America, RSA, put out a press release canceling this year's conference in Portland, Oregon. Their decision to cancel follows similar decisions made by 4Cs, ATTW, and Computers and Writing earlier this month. Quote, on March 20th, all related parties reached an agreement that allows RSA to cancel the 2020 conference without financial penalty. Although RSA will face some challenges in the coming 12 to 24 months, this outcome does not threaten the society's solvency. Thanks to careful planning, we will be able to draw on our reserves to cover a revised budget that no longer includes the conference. Most important, the decision to cancel the conference protects the well-being of our members, registrants, and I hope it provides everyone with a little more certainty in these uncertain times, end quote. RSA is offering a full refund. RSA is also suggesting that presenters still list their presentation on their CV and offer an example of what this might look like. Due to the cancellation of these conferences and so many other conferences and events, the Big Rhetorical Podcast invites folks who were presenting at these conferences to instead present their work on the podcast. If you are interested, please reach out. The COVID-19 global pandemic continues. On Friday, the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, put the state on lockdown by issuing a shelter-in-place order. States like New York, California, Connecticut, and Illinois hope that this supreme act of mandated social distancing stops the spread of the deadly virus. So, where are we now? Currently, the Academy is transitioning to online delivery for the remainder of the semester and for many institutions through the summer. Since there is no clarity concerning when the COVID-19 pandemic might end, some projections suggest up to 18 months. Instructors might be teaching online the rest of 2020. At Computers and Writing 2019 at George Mason University, I met Dr. Devin Ralston. She was at my GRN table. At Computers and Writing 2020 at Michigan State University, I met her partner, Michelle Ralston. We were talking and Michelle suggested episodes devoted to academic labor featuring academics and their partners. I thought this was a great idea. So last fall, I put out the call. Dr. Kristen LaFollette and her husband Justin were the first to answer this call. You probably remember their episode from earlier in season two. For this episode, I'm going to be talking to Devin and Michelle. Devin Ralston is an assistant professor at Winthrop University, where she directs the Writing Center and teaches rhetoric and writing courses. But sometimes work follows me home. Sometimes that's not always understood as a part of that, right? That kind of labor and the taxing. You feel like you have to, especially when you're on tenure track and you're working, it's like, oh, if I, like, I've just got to get more, more work, more work, more work. And I recently said to someone, I think that, you know, one of the benefits or one of the things that happen when you do your job well 
your reward is being asked to do more work or be on more committees or those sorts of things. How do I continue to make space for our relationship? How do I continue to hold that space when you're in a relationship with someone who's an academic? That's a different kind of thing you're asking them to participate in. Her research focuses on intellectual property, identity in online spaces, and queer rhetorics. She is an avid podcast listener. Michelle Ralston holds a master's degree in library science and is a training consultant for Innovative Interfaces, a library software company. She is a dedicated fitness enthusiast who loves racquetball, being outdoors, and has a difficult time sitting still. The couple met in 2004 and have been married since 2011. They reside in Rock Hill, South Carolina. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Devin and Michelle Ralston. My name is Michelle. Uh, I currently work for a company called Innovative that is owned by ProQuest. Oh. And they just bought us. Um, but it's a software company that... Uh, creates and develops software for library, um, their uh, system. So not just checking in and out books, but ordering books, putting books into the system, cataloging them, all of the management of that library system. And I do the training for that. So um, a lot of it is on-site, two or three visits normally, and then I do webinars. And then I keep all the documentation up to date and refresher trainings but I like best working with the new libraries and figuring out how the software is going to work within their own workflow. And each library is different. Um, I grew up in central Illinois, very far away from Chicago, um, middle of cornfields, but in Bloomington where we have state farm. So all the farmers, but there's farmers and farmers where I grew up. <laughs> Why is it important to make that distinction in Illinois but far from Chicago? Because everybody who is not from Illinois just thinks of Chicago. Okay, that's fair, I think. Especially if you're talking like international, you might as well just say Chicago because they don't even know Illinois, but um, most people just know Chicago outside right. of Illinois. So you grew up in Bloomington? I sure did. What is your parent? Go wait, ahead. As close to normal as you're ever going to get. <laughs> That's a favorite joke. Yeah. So my dad for a little bit worked at Eureka Vacuum Company, but he actually ran the like almost room size computer until he was laid off. And then my mom was a hair is, I guess, still a hairstylist, uh, but they divorced when I was like five. So at the time, not. I was like the only person I knew it wasn't as like prevalent as it is today. Did you stay in Bloomington for college or did you head off somewhere else? I went somewhere and I picked the wrong place. <laughs> Where did you head off to? <laughs> to Southern Illinois in the Harbor middle Dale. of Bloomington. No, 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 no. That had been a big city compared to where I went. I went to uh, Blackburn college which is in Carlinville, Illinois, which is 5,000 people, the town. My oh, wow. was probably almost that. And so it was like a 
there was a whistle at noon and everything closed. And I was like, what did I do? And so after a semester, I went back to Bloomington and went to Illinois Wesleyan, finished there, and then went, took a year off and went on to the U of I to get my master's in library and information science. Okay, Devin, let's talk a little bit about you now. We've got Michelle at El- back to Illinois Wesleyan. Yeah. Okay, so I'm Devin Ralston, and I'm an assistant professor of English at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And I teach a lot of writing classes. I teach first year writing, some of the business and professional writing classes, and the classes in rhetorical theory. And I'm also the director of the University Writing Center there. And I grew up in Alabama along the Gulf. Roll Tide. <laughs> Which part of Alabama did you grow up in? <laughs> I grew up along the Gulf Coast mostly. Um, and I uh, there were a lot of different small towns I lived in. But for the amount of time I spent was mostly in Mobile, where my parents still live. Uh, my brother lives in North Alabama in Birmingham, um, Hoover area. And um, so, yeah. And then I'm, I went to the University of South Alabama in Mobile for my undergrad in uh, English. And then I also did my master's there after a year off. And my master's is in, has a concentration in creative writing. And then I went directly from my master's to my PhD program at Illinois State University in Bloomington Normal. And when I was there, that's when I met Michelle. Right. Bloomington Normal, Illinois is is a twin city. And they have two universities, Illinois State University and Illinois Wesleyan University. So you're each there at those two universities. And this is where you meet. And what year was that? 2004. 2004, 16 years ago. So the reason that I wanted to talk to you all or that really we wanted to talk to each other was to talk about the impact of labor, right, on your relationship, the impact of academic labor on your relationship. And luckily, you have you both have a ton of experiences to draw from, not only working in higher education and tangentially in libraries, but also your experiences uh, as graduate students and also holding different jobs in different places. So I hope that as this conversation unfolds going forward, those are the things that we talk about and really highlight the impact of labor on your relationship. And we have 16 years to go through, but certainly we won't go through it, you know, year by year and, and spend all afternoon talking. I'm really excited to talk to you more because this idea for focusing on labor in the academy and on relationships actually stemmed from a conversation that Michelle and I had at Computers and Writing Conference in 2019 at East, wait, no, at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Um, And I can't remember, Michelle, do you remember anything about that conversation I can't remember a whole lot other than I remember we were walking. Gosh, like we took off on a walk. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> <The> exercise. 
Because she says because she makes everybody exercise. Yes, like the first thing Michelle, the first thing Michelle did after I met her, I guess, was make me exercise. <laughs> uh, so we can't remember exactly why we got to talking about this, but it came up. I think it's probably because you tagged along to Devin's conference, perhaps. I, I conference. I've been conference crashing computers and writing longer than some people have been alive. Okay, maybe not that true, but um. I like like to go to the conference, figure out the Wi-Fi, and then I network for Devin while she's in the conference. Then I make her friends, and then uh, we meet people and have conference friends and people that we like are now friends with, not just at the conference, but we look forward to seeing it every year. Like I watched Annette's baby while she presented now, things like that. But I like to go because even though I'm in libraries, we talk about a lot of the same tech. Right. Same things um, overlap. So I come and, and like I said, just kind of listen and, and see what what the academics are talking about uh, versus what the librarians are talking about. And sometimes there's librarians presenting there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a really unique form of labor, I think. Like, And there's a duality to it, Michelle. Like you're working not for yourself professionally, learning more making connections, and also personally, finding friends. Yes. You're not afraid to just walk up to someone and say, hello, how are you? Nope. Nope. (laughs) I will talk to anyone, even if it's detrimental after the fact. Like, oh, man, it shouldn't have been nice to know. I try to be nice to everyone and see everyone as a person, but why not just talk to people? Why not? Devin, what encouraged you or made you want to chat on the podcast about about labor and and your relationship in the academy i guess i was thinking a lot about the different i don't know if sacrifices is the right word but but i think it's close to that or the different kinds of support that i have had from michelle like the willingness that she had to move across the country from her family to for my job here the financial support when I let when I was leaving a job and starting another job where there were about two months before that new paycheck came in where we really solely lived on the job the two jobs that she was holding so I think there's a lot of and and I also find it interesting because she is like I think you use the word tangential or kind of like on the outskirts like her job is very different and so there's also emotional support there's a lot of different kinds of support I think that spouses of academics end up having to provide and I think that's not a conversation I've heard anyone having in any other format and I thought it would be interesting to explore that as we think about labor thinking kind of about what is the what are the different kinds of both like labor that you get a paycheck for, right? Like the work that you do and how those intersections, but also the different kinds of emotional labor that go into supporting someone through a PhD program. Michelle and I met and had, were together right at the beginning of my PhD program. And then she went on to do her master's in library science. So we were both in graduate school at the same time and supporting someone through writing a dissertation. That's a special, unique kind of 
support, I think. Let's unpack the word sacrifices. Not necessarily like examples of sacrifices, but like what kinds of sacrifices have you all had to make? Maybe we can hear from both of you. I don't feel like there's sacrifices. I think it's just part of being in a relationship with person. Like it's not a sacrifice, it's a compromise. Like mm-hmm. I'm not giving up things. I don't I mean feel. we did live apart for four years. Yeah, but that was just what had to be done. I don't think it's a sacrifice. Even Devin was hesitant to use that word sacrifice. That's actually why I wanted to unpack it. What do you think, Devin? Yeah, I think there's a hesitance to that because, like Michelle said, it acts as though like you're giving up something in lieu it's of... It's only of, a sacrifice if the relationship doesn't... doesn't <laughs> you're like, why did I do that? Yeah, I guess, I no. guess, I think that, I think the sacrifice, I don't know, I guess because you don't want to make it seem as though there's a sense of, like, one person not, not getting something out, in, like, in return, like, a sacrifice feels like you're giving something up and not getting something back, and I think that's a dangerous mindset for a relationship to kind of say, like, like these are the things I did or didn't do for you. When, like she said, it's kind of a compromise of what, of just things that had to happen or of decisions that we made together for us or for our future. She's a very pragmatic person. Is that in, is that in, in, in cause tension based on your personality? I'm a very creative, not that she's not creative, she's very creative, but I'm a very like big picture, expressive not detail oriented. Like I would say, Oh, okay. Like I want to paint this wall and I would go out and buy the color, but not buy like the drop cloth or the, you know, plastic sheeting or something like that. I don't have like a lot of details set out and she's very much like, what is it that we need to do to accomplish X, Y, Z and you just do it. And that's just, she just thinks of like, you just do what you have to do. I think it's a Midwestern. I had to make myself be that way. I used to not be that way. wasn't organized and I wasn't like, wouldn't, I would forget everything. So I had to be like ultra organized and super listed and figure everything out. And then it just became habit. But like, I like to think about, you have to think about the big picture, but you have to think about, I'm not super detail oriented. But, like, I'm going to do a little bit of research. That's my librarian part. And be like, okay, what's, like, the basic stuff we need? Um, but I do like the logical, like, I, I like the logical steps to do things. Like, we should go to A, B, C, and then come home because it makes, like, a circle. And Devin would just go wherever she wanted to first, even if she had to drive back and forth ten times. Like, that's not logical. So I like to do the logical steps and I like to do the research if I don't understand what those logical steps should be. Yeah. That's accurate. And once I'm in, I'm all in. That's like once too. I'm going to paint the walls, we're not just painting one wall. We're going to paint all the walls. Cause I'm not going to just do one wall. That would be silly. If I have to buy all this stuff, we're going to do it all. Yeah. When she commits, it's full on. You mentioned that you were both in graduate school at the same time. That was must have been pretty tough. Did you live together then? Did you live in separate cities? What was that experience like? We lived in Champaign. 
And so you did the traveling then, Devin. Mm-hmm. So we lived in Champaign. Michelle, were you working at? You were work. You Michelle worked at the library. Well, I started before I like graduated. Yeah, but you first I worked at the park district. Yeah, so Payless. So <laughs> Michelle has always, as long as I've known her, never had just one job. She's always worked. I like to have multiple. She jobs. likes to stay busy, and she's always worked multiple jobs. So when she first moved to Champaign, I still lived in Bloomington. So when she first went to moved to Champaign, I was still in Bloomington. And then when I was finishing my very last year. After your classwork was done. After my coursework was finished, then I moved in with her to Champaign. And so I would drive to classes. And then my very last semester, I was doing editorial work as part of my assistantship and I wasn't teaching. So I was just doing that and writing my dissertation, which was a very taxing experience and, and very difficult. Let me ask a cliche question. How was it taxing and difficult in your relationship? Do you want to answer that? I just had to tell her, like I would come home So I, at that point, I think I was working at the library and then I was working at Best Buy. So I'd like come home either from the library or maybe at like 10 o'clock at night from Best Buy. And she'd be in like this piss poor mood and be pissed at her dissertation and be all grumpy. And I'd have to be like, look, I didn't do anything to you. I'm not the reason you're upset. You can't take it out on me. But I think not everybody would be able to articulate that. Mm different relationship and then they would just get mad and like fight but I'd just be like look if this is how you're going to be I'm just going to turn around I will go do something with my friends I'll go do something that where people are being nice to me if you can't and so sometimes she'd be like you probably better just go (laughs) hang out with your friends and sometimes she'd be like okay just give me like some five minutes to go we call it put on a new face go put on a new face and come back and then we can have a nice night like I had to make her separate it because it it wasn't fair, even to her. Like she needed to regroup and and get out of that mindset, if she, you know. But like, I just was like, if you're gonna be like that, I'm not gonna hang out with you. You can just be in your little dissertation angriness, and I'm going out to hang out with my people. Then I just tell her how it is. That's true. It was particularly it was particularly hard, as you know, probably in any kind of writing that you do when the writing is is tough, when the writing is hard, when there would be like a hard day of writing. And I was in it all day because I did not have as much written as I wanted to have written because I essentially took a month or so off of writing to do the job market, all of the things for the job market. And so I was kind of playing, there were times I was felt like I was playing catch up in writing some of the chapters, even though the research was done in just trying to pull it all together. I was really under a deadline of, I have a job and that job requires me to have a PhD. And that means I have to defend by a certain date, which means, right? So you have these very strict deadlines that there's no movement on. And so when I was just kind of in it was very consuming because she would be at class or she would, and then she would go to work and do all, or, you know, 
she'd be working the different two jobs and I would be at home with my writing all day. <laughs> and there wasn't worse than a newborn, worse than a newborn baby. Almost, <laughs> right? And so if there's not a place for that, inter- the baby's cute. A dissertation. Mm. Yeah. The dissertation was not as cute as a newborn baby. Mm-mm. And if there's nowhere for the energy of that to kind of go, then it just, and, and I'm not someone that's always really good at acknowledging or separating. Oh, okay. Like here's the zone or here's the space for these things. And I need to be able to stop doing that and be joyful that this person who is supporting me has like come home. And now I don't have to like deal with all of those things that are, you know, dissertation related. And there were a lot of times that I wasn't getting out of the house. I was writing all day in my pajamas on the couch. So I started just going out to places in Champaign to write. So I would go to different cafes or different restaurants or different places where I could be around other people. And I think that seemed to help a lot. My writing, it it got a bit better, but it wasn't ideal. It wasn't an ideal situation. And I don't think I was particularly aware of how much my emotions and my frustration or just that sort of writing space would like leak out. And so when she said like, you've got to put on a new face or decide that I'm going to go be with my friends without you. That was kind of like that jolting. There's like jolting moments that, um, that kind of forced me to acknowledge those emotions. And I mean, like that's kind of the emotional labor that I'm talking, that I'm really talking about that it required and, and all relation, it's not like all relationships don't have that emotional labor, but that required that required a certain kind of emotional IQ and a way of sort of saying, Hey, like it's not okay for you to act this way, even though I acknowledge what you're doing is really hard. We still have to, you still have to be in this relationship too. And that means that you have to be better at separating your feelings about your dissertation with your feelings about your friends and your family and like the person that you care about. Hi everyone, my name is Paul Cook and I am at Indiana University Kokomo. Would you like to join Charles on the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a conference to promote? Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. As we embark upon the newest season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please feel free to check out older episodes and our newest episodes wherever you get podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor. 
FM. If you have any questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at thebigret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. Now back to the show. You mentioned that your first job out of ISU required a PhD. Where was that at? At Millican University in Decatur, Illinois. And did you and Michelle move together to Decatur? No, I commuted. We stayed in Champaign where her job was, and I commuted and carpooled the 40-ish minutes like 40, yeah. uh, each way. for about how, about how long were you at Millican? Four years. Four years. So four years of commuting. That's a pretty long time. What kind of toll did that take on your relationship? I don't think it did. It. I think, like, because she dropped me at work, and then, because I worked two jobs, so she was still home before me. So she would drop me at work and then go to work. And then pick me up at like 10 o'clock at night. It definitely created a separation for work when I was on campus. That was like very much work space. And then when I was at home. Like at first I felt like that it helped her. It was her first job and she was there and she had to be there all day. Then I felt guilty about it because like, you know, some days you don't teach it. It's not a nine to five job. And so, like, some days, you know, she had to be there at nine, but maybe she didn't teach till one or something. And I kind of felt bad about that. But I think since it was her first job, it made her be present in a way she might not have been if she had lived down the street and was able to just, like, now you can go when you want and do this and that. And that I think it probably helped you in that first job situation, having to just be there and, and be separate from your life, like, in Champagne. Um but afterwards, I was like, yeah, I don't like once we moved here, I got a job like um, it was I was driving an hour and 20 minutes and we can talk about that. That's a lot, lot longer than 40 or 45. Um, but I didn't want her to have to commute at that point, like because of her job and because it's not nine to five that like the commute is much different. So I wanted her to be able to go home between classes or you know, not be stuck on campus all day if she didn't have to be. I don't know if that makes sense. I think it helped her in the beginning, though, and yeah. it was probably really good for her in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But now I wouldn't want to make her do that. I do think one of the things that was challenging about it was that it, because it, as I mentioned, it created this separation, like this is my work sort of space and this is my home sort of space. And I was kind of protective of that home space and, and in ways like I'm probably a little less protective now because I am so close, but I also think I wasn't able to go to Michelle's work functions 
as her partner and she wasn't able to come to mine because there was that distance. And I don't know that that had an impact on anything. It just kind of was the way that it was, but it, it further, I guess, cemented that separation. So you were at Milliken for four years. What prompted your decision to leave Milliken? And also what did that mean for your relationship? This is a pretty big moment. I think that, so a few things really led to the decision. When I finished my PhD, it was in the summer of 2008. Very quickly after that was the recession of 2008. Between the time that I interviewed at the university and the time I started, there were people in drastically different positions. So when I interviewed, there was I interviewed with a, a certain dean. That dean of arts and sciences was no longer there by the time I showed up. The mm-hmm. same was true of the chair. The same was true of the provo- or the vice president of academic affairs. There were a lot of people in administrative positions who had either left the university or changed roles. So the, that landscape changed a little bit. Um, and there were some other... I don't know, things that I didn't realize when I accepted a position at a small liberal liberal arts school, which Milliken is. And I loved all, I loved the students there. I thought the student, the students were always bright and ambitious and interesting students. And I am still in contact with some of them today, but I don't think I anticipated the toll of being in at a small a very like closed and small space so I really wanted bigger opportunities I wanted some different kinds of mentoring and so I almost and I was concerned when I first got there about what the economic impact of the recession would be on universities so almost as soon as I got there I started looking for other jobs which I continue to do almost every year just because to see sort of see what was out there. And so maybe there's a sense where I never fully like committed to staying there Mm. in the situation because of that, because of the sort of constant economic uncertainty of a school that depends on an endowment for its funding. And when the opportunity, even though there was a visiting position that came open and there was an opportunity to work with people I admired in the field of rhetoric and composition and professional writing, I thought this seems like something I should do. There was just something in me that said you should apply for this position. And so I did, but then we had to figure out and I got that visiting position, but then we had to figure out what that meant because Michelle was still working in Illinois and that visiting position was at Miami, Ohio, in Miami University at Ohio, uh, in Oxford, Ohio, which was four hours away from Champaign and a different time zone from Champaign. Time zone. And well, Michelle was working her job with the library system and was not yet vested in her retirement. So if she moved jobs, she would lose some of that retirement money. 
So you 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 stayed in Champagne then, Michelle? How long how long were you in Champagne while Devin was in Miami? It ended up being four years. What was your relationship like during that time? Um, it was actually I think that it got better. Yeah. Because when you don't live in the same physical space or even in the same like state, you are forced to communicate these different things that normally you aren't that normally you don't talk about I think like just because you don't have to talk about things I can't really I can't think of an example of what I mean but there because like you you don't have well first you don't have to make time to see each other right when you live together you're not like so what are you doing tomorrow night (laughs) you have time to talk like you're just assuming you're going to see that person and talk to that person, whether you actually really communicate with them or not during those time periods. So then when you are together physically, you really want to communicate. You really want to be present. We had lots of phone conversations, even though I hate talking on the phone. She does. I'm not a phone person. So I would do it when I was driving if I could so that it's like, you know, I hate driving. So let's do two things I hate at once and get them out of the way. But like just like when you you appreciate the physical time you have together and and you have to, you're forced to communicate in a different way than normal and i think it was good like i mean you don't want to not live in the same state i'm not saying like everybody should go ahead and move to different states just to improve your relationship but i think like that whole distance makes the heart grow stronger like you do appreciate what's not there you appreciate the fact, you know, that sometimes somebody might make you breakfast or just little things that people do for you every day that then they're not doing. Or when you cook and you cook for too many people because you're used to cooking for like two people. Now you're just cooking for one or I don't know. I think it it helped us become better communicators and I would do it again if I had to. Yeah, I, I agree that we were forced, I think one of to to we were forced to communicate in different ways. And one of the things that Michelle said that I think is really accurate is this idea of trying of a way to make space for each other. So when you're very busy in your everyday kind of life you're not probably taking time to acknowledge the things that someone else might do for you or the ways that they might help you. And when you are in long distance relationships, that becomes very obvious because when the person is not there, you have that kind of awareness. So Michelle lived in an efficiency, which didn't have a dishwasher. So I would try to, before I left, when we, I would try to visit twice a month because I had a lot of flexibility in my schedule and she was still working uh, at Best Buy part-time and then her regular library job. And so I would try to make a couple of meals for her or something that she could easily reheat. And then I would usually do the dishes. And I joked that she always left the dishes for me to do, but I would try to do them because that made her life a little bit easier. And I wasn't there every day to do, to make her life a little bit easier. And her love language is acts of service and so anything that I could do, I vacuumed out her car a couple of times, like just little things. Those things are very meaningful for her. 
And I, we actually took a lot more time with each other and, and did have to, I don't know, like see each other differently, make space for each other differently. And once again, it separated my work from my personal life because when I was four hours away, I was, I, I was working all of, you know, I was like teaching and working and doing all that sort of stuff. And it was very, on the weekends, I did not check my email. I did not do work. I did not grade. I did not because I was spending them with her created a different kind of balance that isn't really there now. So you, so you mentioned now, so you're in at Winthrop University in South Carolina. How long have you all been in Winthrop now? We've been here since 2016. Okay. And you do the, uh, you're the director of the writing center. And Michelle, yeah. you do a lot of traveling now with your job. I do. Yes. She changed jobs. Okay. She did not have to commute an hour and 20 minutes to Columbia, South Carolina every day to the state library. And so, Michelle, that's what you were doing when y'all moved to Winthrop. That's the job you got was at the State Library and you had to commute? One hour and 20 minutes. I do agree with you that 45 minutes is very different than one hour and 20 minutes on as far as commuting goes. Yeah, it's a lot. It's It was like almost 15 hours a week in the car. Goodness gracious. What was that like? Like, oh. It was horrible. <laughs> But you don't have to do that anymore. Not. But you do travel a bit. The hall, or go to the airport. Right. So you do a bit of traveling. About how much? How many days of a month are you gone? It's a fifty percent. Travel is what's in the job description. Mm -hmm. Um, But I normally like leave on Monday and come back on Friday, uh, twice a month. Like, but last fall was crazy. And I'd have like three weeks in a row and one week off and then three weeks in a row and one week off. But uh, because we had a really big, it was a really big project. So um, I had to go a lot. But I've been home this whole month. After living apart for four years, a significant distance, I'm sure that traveling for a week is is not really a scary proposition. People are always like, my gosh, isn't that so hard? But it's not. Yeah, I would say it does impact your relationship, though, in different ways than living apart. I think that if we hadn't lived apart for those four years, it, her job of traveling now would have, would be a lot more difficult mm-hmm. because we've just kind of we just kind of continued with the sort of communication that we that we tried before the different kind of tactics that we did before we didn't revert back to poor communicators. We we maintained that. And so sometimes I think that for me, it can be helpful when she's gone and I have a lot of writing to do or a big work project or a ton of things, because then I put all my energy into that and I don't have to feel guilty about that. I don't have to feel bad that I'm not having time that is, is for the two of us, which sometimes when she is here, I, there were times where I said, Oh, like we were going, we're supposed to go out to dinner. And I said, you know, I can't go, like, I have to meet this deadline. Like I'm not going to be able to go. And that's really disappointing. And I don't like to have to do that. And it's rare, but I'm not the best at time management. It's more disappointing to you. Like, I want you to be able to come, but I'm at a point, like, it's kind of like with the dissertation, like, 
if this is what you have to do, that's what you have to do. But I'm not going to stop my life for it. And maybe that sounds selfish, but I think it makes our relationship better also uh, because I'm not just going to be like, well, I can't go because Devin can't go. No. And then re- sit at home doing nothing and resent her while she grades or does whatever she needs to do. So, like, of course I want her to come, but if she's not going to come, I'm still going to go. And I'll bring her some food back because I'm a nice person. Yeah, I wouldn't want you to. To me, that would be the sacrifice, right? If the person wasn't going to go, if right. you're not going to go, then that becomes. That's why I like don't think it's a sacrifice. Like I still like we can come I'll If I'm at home, I don't do sitting down and doing nothing well. But like I can be in the same room with her and do my own thing while she does her own thing. And we're still together. And was I still feel like we're like not even though we're not communicating or spending like time together, like doing the exact same thing, we're still like in the same room and chilling out and are still like next to each other. I don't have to be entertained by her. We don't have to be like, how is it any different than watching a movie? If she's grading and I'm doing, I I play stupid games on my phone or whatever. Like, how is it different than watching a movie? If you're not really talking, Yeah, it's not. So we still are spending time together being in the presence of one another that we didn't have. Right. And I, I think though I'm appreciative of that and more aware of that than I would be before mm-hmm. or than I would have been before. I think before I might've felt like it was my responsibility to entertain you or to, yeah. if we were going to be in the same room. We had to be communicating or I don't know, playing a game or something to like, we, you have to be doing an activity together. She is killing my board game playing though. Yeah. We haven't played board games in Very a long time. Not, not a lot. Although you're not supposed to be doing that right now, I guess anyway, playing board games because you're touching all of the pieces and that can like bread germs. Mm. I know that you both have part-time gigs, and I think that it's important that we acknowledge those gigs and also talk a little bit about them because you have full-time jobs, tenure track, writing center director, master's degree, library sciences. Let's start with you, Michelle. Michelle, why do you have two jobs? I can't just sit and be bored. Easy enough answer. Also, I can't give up the discount from Best Buy. (laughs) But yeah, I don't want to just sit and do nothing So, like, how I actually, like, started working in retail again was I was playing World of Warcraft, and I was, like, raiding and, like, playing 15, 20-plus hours a week, like, with this group. And I was like, man, I'm devoting, like, 20 hours a week to, like, sitting in a computer uh, at my computer with headphones on. I could be getting money. So, like, that's when I was like, I'm going to go get a second job and make some money instead of just wasting my life away. Not that it, I mean, I still, I don't play World of Warcraft anymore. I still play video games and stuff, but just not to the same extent. Devin, why do you have a, what is your second gig? And and why do you have that gig? So, there's a company in South Carolina that pre that prepares uh, ready-made microwave 212 meals. And our the gym that Michelle and I go to, that Michelle goes to and I sometimes go to. The, our gym is a pickup location for those meals. And so I go and uh, make sure the counts are right of those meals when they are delivered to the freezer that is at our gym. And then I uh, bag everyone's meals and hand them out to them 
on Monday mornings. And I started doing it because I wanted to try the meals. And so it was a way for me to try them. And technically I kind of signed up for it. That's true. Michelle really did sign up for it. I thought we would just bag them and leave them and that I could do it. But then I realized you had to stay there to like hand them out. And I was like, Oh, I can't do that. But Devin can. Yeah. You're welcome. (laughs) Michelle did kind of rope me into it, but it means that every week I'm able to um, have these, have 10 meals. That's sort of our uh, exchange and that makes our my life a lot easier. And uh, Michelle eats some of them too, uh, especially the breakfast ones. But it makes meal planning and that kind of stuff a lot easier. So I'm not like dependent on it, but it makes my life smoother. And the one, a couple of weeks when I traveled and got someone else to do the work for me. And so I didn't get the meals. I did feel like I spent more money at the grocery store to kind of make up for that. So it, it's a way for me to get convenient. That that's the trade off convenient microwavable meals that are really tasty. I know a bunch of grad students who would probably take that exchange right now. Like the best. Yeah. (laughs) What else do we need to cover when we think about labor, the academy and your relationship? I consider myself really lucky. That's really lucky. Because I know people who are in two academic relationships, right? Both people are academics. And so it can be really tough for people to find a job in that environment. So I think that we're lucky in that we're able to both do something that we like to do and be in the same place because of it. But I do think that academia teaching, particularly, so Winthrop is a teaching university, Not that there's not research expectations, but it's not a job where you clock out, right? So I do think that there is something – I appreciate that Michelle understands that. And I think it's important sometimes to try to figure out how to not be – not overwork yourself and set some boundaries so – when Michelle is in town, I leave campus much earlier than I would, than I do when she's not home. Like if she's waiting for me, if she's like, okay, I'm putting dinner, you know, in the oven or the dinner is ready in the crock pot or like whatever it is we we're d- deciding for that night. She gets really mad. This is what would happen. I'm leaving. Okay. We'll get everything ready. And it would be like 30 minutes later when it's like a 15 minute travel time and I'd be like dude where are you and she's like oh I'm just getting to the car so now I just tell her what time I'm eating and if she's not home I eat she can reheat it when I get when she gets there (laughs) and I said don't tell me you're coming until you're at the car right so now I text and I say I'm leaving my office I'm at the car I'm what I'm I'm leaving campus (laughs) so she has a play-by-play but I think I think I need to, it's important to, I think, recognize and be aware of what, like, what is staying in the office, sending that extra email, right? Like, you got to have some, I don't think, I think balance is not a really great word, but you got to have some kind of boundary. You have to have some kind of cutoff time. Uh, And it can be really, really tough for people who do have a nine to five type job 
who clock in and are able to shrug off the day. You know, I don't feel like, I feel like in academia, we don't have that. As an administrator, I don't have that. I have students sending messages and questions about their schedules, or I have a meeting that comes up out of nowhere with a someone else on campus about the writing center, or I have papers to grade that, you know, essays to read and students need that feedback so they can be a better, be better on the next essay, right? Like there's all of those sorts of things that can be very taxing in a relationship to someone who doesn't understand that your job just doesn't lead. Like when I drive away from campus, I'm still taking some of that work with me, whether that's good or bad, or we should do that, or we should set better boundaries. Like I'm, I, I've tried, I try to stop reading email at a certain point. I try to do what I can, but sometimes work follows me home. Sometimes that's not always understood as a part of that, right? That kind of labor and the taxing. You feel like you have to, especially when you're on tenure track and you're working, it's like, oh, if I, like, I've just got to get more, more work, more work, more work. And I recently said to someone, I think that, you know, one of the benefits or one of the things that happen when you do your job well, your reward is being asked to do more work or be on more committees or those sorts of things. And so trying to figure out how to say, this is what I can do. This is what I can't do. How do I continue to make space for our relationship? How do I continue to hold that space when the job that I do is so much of who I am as a person and so much of my identity? I think that's a very different, when you're in a relationship with someone who's an academic, that's a different kind of thing you're asking them to participate in. And I frequently say that if we hadn't met in my very first year as a P- in the PhD program, I would never have asked someone to jump along on this train because it's really a roller coaster. Thanks to both of y'all for chatting with me today. Yes, thank you, Charles. Dr. Devin Ralston and Michelle Ralston. As we approach the end of our second season and look towards season three, which will include the production of our 50th episode, I'm asking you to please write a review for the podcast. By writing a review, you will help the podcast visibility across platforms on which the podcast is available. That's the primary thing we need right now as we take the next steps in expanding our reach. Thank you for your help with this. Okay, rhetorical listeners, make sure to download all episodes of The Big Rhetorical Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at The Big Ret and find us on Facebook. You can email the podcast at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com and you can buy merch from our online store, cafepress.com slash tbrpodmerch. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening. Rhetorically.